This is March of History. Welcome back. I am your co-host, Trevor Furness. And your co-host, Brennan Furness. We're here today for episode 12 of the March of History podcast. Today, we're going to conclude the conspiracy of Catiline and what a story it is. Now, it's funny. At the end of last episode, after we stopped recording, Brennan brought up a great comparison. He said Catiline, or Brennan, maybe you want to say it about comparing Catiline to Bizarro. Yeah, I mean, from what I got when we were speaking about Catiline, it seems like he's almost sort of like a dystopian version of Caesar. And and even in general, I just feel, I get a feeling that the sullen reign is just a, a dystopian Rome and Catiline, you know, with his talent and his, he's a populare, uh, he's very well liked by people, but everything kind of ends up going wrong. And he's sort of also kind of edgy. He does things, he does uh, things that are not necessarily moral, not as a means to, to a greater good. But rather, just to uh, he does those things that are morally questionable, uh, just because he, he enjoys doing them. For that is the end uh, in and of itself, not not a means to an end, like like is the case with Caesar. Yeah, you, you could say that. I mean, there are tons of similarities between the two. They're both populares. They both borrow a ton of money. They both take big risks. They're both part of kind of the you know chic or cool set in Rome, but. Catiline definitely is a weird shadow version of what Caesar could have been if Caesar either was less moral or took greater or you could call them worse gambles or just wasn't as talented as he is or wasn't as lucky. So before we get back into the story, I want to mention a few things. Last time I want to say, I, I think I said that Sallust, which is one of the historians, that we're going off of for this whole story. And he's a contemporary of Caesar. So he's a good guy to go off of for the story. I believe I said that he was a soldier in Caesar's army in Gaul. That is absolutely false. As far as I know, he did help serve in Caesar's army during later times after Gaul. He was more of a politician and maybe handled more of you know, logistics. Although I think he wasn't command at certain times, but he wasn't a foot soldier in the army. So, he was still active in politics at, at this time. So it's not that he's a, a younger, a completely like the next generation that he wouldn't have even been in service. It's just that he wasn't serving with Caesar in Gaul. Yeah, no, he, he's younger than Caesar, but while Caesar's in Gaul, he is like a Caesar partisan. You know, he's one of the guys looking oh, out for Caesar's is interests. A okay. Yeah. And he basically owes his career to Caesar. And you'll see that a lot in Rome, you know, who, like, like Caesar, you know, was at one point a Crassus partisan. Whoever helps your career along and pays your debts and promotes you and introduces you to people, you're kind of on their side. And especially if they're an extremely powerful person like a you know, Crassus or a Pompey, you become, you know, one of their surrogates or one of their proxies in which they battle each other through. The dream, of course, is to, you know, eventually create your own side and not be on somebody else's side. Easier done than said, though. Or it's easier said than done. Now, another thing that I haven't mentioned yet, and I probably should have mentioned this, but 63 BC is such a jam-packed year. There's so much to talk about. But at some point during this year, in addition to being elected Pontifex Maximus, Caesar is also elected Praetor. And don't attack me, or should I say crucify me, if I got that pronunciation wrong. I've heard Praetor, I've heard Praetor, I've heard all sorts of different versions. I'm going to say Praetor because that's what I'm used to. And if it's wrong, I'm sorry, but Latin's a dead language, so what can I do? Yeah, and I, I think we can all agree that Praetor sounds better than Praetor. So. Yeah, yeah, so let's just go. <laughs> For that reason alone, let's go with that. Yeah. So Caesar, he, he wins election to Praetor by a wide margin. And so during this time of 63 BC, he is a Praetor-elect, which doesn't give him any power per se, but it gives him an increased speaking order during Senate meetings. And then another thing that I don't know if I made as clear about Catiline, or if I did, I think it's worth saying again, his the whole main platform that he was running on, and indeed the, the platform that his rebellion was created on, was the cancellation of debts, of all debts, and the prescription of the wealthy. So talk about a radical platform to run for office on now was he going out in his speeches for consul saying i'm going to prescribe the wealthy 
No, he's smart enough not to do that. But he was certainly mentioning it in corners in the poorer areas that this there would be a reckoning for the poor and downtrodden to you know take the land and, and wealth away from the aristocrats. So when you say prescription of the wealthy here, I mean, I'm thinking of like the Sullen prescriptions killing people. Is that what we're talking about? Or is this That's just exactly some, what we're talking about? That, that is exactly. Okay. So this would be a full like a, Oh yeah. Butchering them. Yeah. A French revolution style. Exactly. Like, uh, killing off the, the rich nobles. So, but Catalan himself is a, Patrician, a patrician, right? So, yeah, I guess there's a bit of a he'd run the risk of getting killed himself, but maybe I guess they would excuse him. Yeah, he, he I mean, he's playing with fire when you think about it. He's uh, trying to ride this popular reform as somebody that's definitely belongs in the optimate class, but as we can see in Rome, it's it's never so clear as that, right? If Caesar's a popular a, Catiline's a popular a. You know, just because you're born patrician doesn't mean you're going to be with all the blue bloods. You have the choice at that point. You know, some people don't have the choice. You know, they have to be a popularity because they're never going to be accepted. And then you have a Cicero who's definitely an outsider. He's not even born in Rome, and he's more conservative than Caesar is. You know, he's not an maybe he's not one of the accepted members of the optimate, but he skews kind of center right. He's more of an optimate than a popularity, and he's not even you know originally born in Rome. So. Just because you're of one class or another doesn't necessarily dictate your politics. Now, I think that there's another quote worth reading that puts all this into perspective about what the Senate's answer was to Catiline in the political sense. Did they have legislation to counter this? Did they know that there were problems and, hey, we're addressing them, but Catiline's you know, doing, trying to address these same issues in the wrong manner? So this is a quote from a book called Cicero by Anthony Everett. Great book on Cicero if you're interested. But he says, quote, The Senate had no answer to Rome's problems, and indeed sought none. Its aim was simply to maintain the Constitution and resist the continual attacks on its authority. Above all, it needed to conserve its forces for the day of Pompey's return. On the likely assumption that he would defeat Mithridates and bring Asia Minor back under Roman control, he would acquire immense prestige and would overshadow all of his peers. Not only that, he would come back to Italy at the head of a victorious army and would be in a position to control or even take over the government. And the key things that I thought were important in that, well, one is that we haven't talked about Pompey. You know, last we left off that he had gotten that command in the east to fight Mithridates, and we haven't talked about him. And we will, but he factors into all this and, and how the Senate's thinking and why they're acting the way that they're acting. The other key thing in that, I think, is that they say the Senate had no answer to Rome's problems and indeed sought none. And that's the issue. You know, the optimates, the bony, not only are they not offering any solutions to all the problems, you know, the massive amount of debt, the tons of urban poor, the people that have lost everything due to huge plantations that are, are buying up all the f small farms and employing slaves brought in from around the empire. And then all these people lose their farms and they all swarm into Rome and this, as this huge urban poor mob with, with no jobs that are fed by the state. It's a, it's a whole issue. And the Senate, not only do they not have solutions to this problem that Catiline's stirring everybody up over, they don't want any solutions. The optimates say things are fine as the way they are because they're fine for the people that are in the optimate class. And they don't want anything to change. They have no desire to help anybody. And, and that's an important thing. And, you know, it's, he says its aim was simply to maintain the Constitution and resist the continual tax on its authority. Yeah, and I mean, uh, to some extent, I can see where they're coming from because it, they do have 400 or whatever number of years of history of you know, running the Republic as, as it has been run. So it is tough to – I could or I could see how they could be hesitant to – make drastic changes that hadn't been made in the past because in the past, the Republic, the way it was run, was so successful. Yeah, no, it's understandable for that reason, definitely. But then you have to look at, is this the same Republic as it was 400 years ago? And the answer emphatically is no, because it used to be that all of the land-holding citizens, small farmers and rich people alike, would all join the military and it was a citizen army. 
It wasn't a professional army. And they would return and farm their lands. But, you know, as we talked about in previous episodes, none of that is possible at this point. They have professional armies. They're made up of many of the urban poor or local people from the provinces that are recruited into the army. Most of the small farms around Italy are disappearing. They're bought up by these huge either groups of investors or, you know, one very rich you know, senator that owns them through, you know, some shadowy ways. And senators had to be careful of, of what kind of commerce they engaged in. And they would buy up these small farms, but not just through legal means. They would be pretty ruthless about it. So a man would go and serve in the military for, say, 20 years, and he would come back, and his farm had been stolen by you know, the neighboring mega farm, and they had just incorporated it into their farm because this guy wasn't there to defend himself, and they threw his family off that all went into Rome you know, as, as poor, landless people that had no income now. And he comes back and he's fought and, you know, watched his buddies died and maybe been wounded for the glory of Rome and comes back to no property and good luck convincing the mega farm to give you your land back. That's never going to happen. So these are the problems that people are facing and the optimists want to stick their head in the sand and say, no, everything's fine. But as if it was the way it used to be, you know, and it used to be that people would return to their farm and their farm would still be there and, and they would be employed to the benefit of Roman and they weren't, you know, living off the grain dole in Rome itself. So a lot's changed. And I think that the popularists say we have different problems now. We need different solutions. And the optimists say, no, the set of solutions we had at the beginning are the only ones that are, that will ever work and, you know, have worked great so far. So let's not change them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would think that they're, they would come up with a solution, like maybe they they test out the you know the change. Like they they do it. They make the change at a small scale first, see what the effects are, and then gradually, uh, you know, if they if they see that it's working, then roll it out. Because I mean, it's not as if they didn't have time to think about this. Because I I think last time we had talked about like the popularities had been trying to get a measure like this passed for like the past hundred years or something, right? Yeah, for a long time. I mean, it's a bit like, and I don't want to get bogged down in modern politics. And I don't want to lose half my <laughs> half of our listeners either. But I'll say it's a bit like the Second Amendment debate in the U.S. now. So in, the, in that case, and I'm not going to take sides on it one way or the other. I'm just going to you know, present it as neutrally as I can. But conservatives believe that if they relent on any gun legislation, it's you know a slippery slope and eventually... They're going to be, you know, their Second Amendment rights will be taken away. So they don't want to allow any changes. And liberals are pushing to, as much as they can, you know, get any changes that they can, and, and it's never enough, right? And that's how the optimists and the populare see these land reform bills. The optimists believe that any kind of land reform is a slippery slope, and they do not want any of that. And the best way to stop it is to not allow any of that to pass. What's more is it gets complex because a lot of these land reform bills, they want to reform or they want to take the public land because there's public land owned by Rome itself in Italy and around the empire. And they want to turn that into land for veterans and for poor citizens and to take these urban poor that are living off the free grain doll from the government and turn them into productive citizens that are farming around the empire and aren't you know, joining gangs in the streets of Rome. And that seems like a great idea, but a lot of this public land that's supposed to go to the treasury of Rome when it produces crops or money or whatever is actually being gobbled up by different senators. And many of the optimates have stolen, essentially stolen this land from, it's in Rome's land in name only. And really it's farmed by a lot of these optimates and other senators. And they don't like the idea of land redistribution because now that's a big source of their income and they don't want to lose that income. So, I mean, it, it's not... Just the political stance of, hey, we think that, you know, Rome's rules are best the way they were originally created and we don't want to change that. It's also that they have stolen a lot of this land from the public land that belongs to Rome and they are farming it themselves or not themselves, but they have people farming it for them and they're collecting money. And they would have to admit that they're doing that to, I guess, to stop this from happening. So instead of, you know, admitting, hey, I've stolen this land and I, I can't afford to lose this income. Instead, they'll stand on principle of, uh, hey, you know, this is against, uh, this is not very Roman and not very conservative. Yeah, that, it's kind of why it astounds me that there's ever any 
when there are uh, these big corruption cases against certain people just seems completely arbitrary. I mean, you have these people that are just robbing the, the Roman treasury blind and there's no charges against them because it, it's so-called not a an egregious act of corruption. But it, I mean, it seems pretty... <laughs> it, it is egregious blatant, though, right? So, yeah. right? It seems pretty blatant and egregious to me. And this is what infuriates the popularities is that in in their minds, they think the optimists kind of just make up in their heads what's okay and what's not, and then choose to prosecute or attack other people based on some made up double standard moral compass that that is completely absurd. And that's what infuriates a lot of the people and, and the popularities is they're, they're being attacked for being rabble rousers or for just redistributing land. And they'll say that, oh, they're just doing that so that they can you know, make themselves kings of Rome and attack them for that reason. And they have a point. There are some populares that are cynical and are just using the people's causes to fuel themselves and to you know, boost their own career and, and hopefully you know, ride high off of that. But the populares get very frustrated by being called un-Roman and corrupt and this and that by a group of people that are doing every corruption in the book and claiming the moral high ground. It's interesting that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what? how would you categorize Catalan in that respect? Is he a genuine populare or is he just out to capitalize on the power of the people uh, in order to bolster his own power? He is a, an interesting person. And, and I think probably like most people, it's not one or the other. It's some mix of them. And I don't know where that mix exactly lies. I don't know whether he's mostly cynical and just using people. Maybe at the end of the story you may have a different opinion on him. So that's one thing I'll mention. You may have one opinion of Catiline now from the first half uh, or episode 11 about in the first half of the conspiracy. And you think about what that impression of him is. And then by the end of this, you may have a completely different impression of him or you may have the same impression. But either way, we would love if you would leave us a comment in the podcast store and just let us know, you know, what, what are your thoughts on Catiline? You know, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he misunderstood? Just give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear it. So then getting back into the story at hand, I want to read to give you a better idea of Catiline before, you know, we go too much further. Not that we've gone anywhere yet, but a speech of his that he gave to his supporters. So this is a speech that I guess he had spoken to many of his supporters one-on-one. And then he gathered them all at his house to speak to them as a group. And this is when he's back running for consul. So we're kind of jumping back for a minute. But I'm just reading this to give you an idea of the kind of things that he was saying to people. And whether he really believed this or not, who knows? But this is what he was saying. And this is according to Sallust. He says, quote, You have already heard before, separately, what I have pondered in my mind. Yet my spirit is kindled more and more each day when I reflect what the conditions of life will be if we do not assert our freedom ourselves. For ever since the commonwealth passed to the jurisdiction of a powerful few, it has always been to them that the dues of kings and tetrarchs go, that the taxes of the people and the nations are paid. The rest of us, all committed and good, noble and ignoble, have been simply, quote, the masses, denied favor, denied influence, beholden to those to whom, if the commonwealth thrived, we would be a source of fear. Hence, all favor, power, honor, and riches rest with them, or are where they want them. To us, they have left the dangers, rejections, lawsuits, and destitution. End quote. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if Catiline did have a lot of good intentions and and the potential to be a leader to to group people together to fight for those, but then Maybe he was just undermined by his, his delinquency, his, his love for uh, getting into trouble and stuff. And, and that made it seem maybe not so credible, the rest of his, his political jive uh, to help out the, the people. Yeah, he, he may have been a flawed messenger of a great cause. Just because he's a fl- like very flawed individual that may have done many, many shady things doesn't mean the cause that he's fighting for is wrong. And I'll go on in that speech. He goes on to say some more things. He says, quote, what mortal of manly disposition can tolerate the fact that they abound in riches, which they can pour into building on the sea and leveling mountains, while we lack the private assets even for necessities? 
that they each link two or more houses together, while our household gods are nowhere to be found. They buy their pictures, statues, and reliefs. They destroy new structures and put up others. In fact, they plunder and ravage their money by every means at their disposal. Yet, despite the extreme nature of their whims and lusts, they are unable to achieve victory over their riches. But for us, it is want at home and debt abroad, a distressing situation and the prospect of much more of much worse. What in the end have we left except the pitiful breath that we breathe? Yeah, I mean, those are some really good lines there. I mean, I like the the part about um, there are two parts. The uh, the one great part was uh, where he talks about they're unable to achieve victory even then on their riches. <laughs> As if, you know, they're trying right, their best yeah, to yeah. spend all this money, but even they can't spend it. Right, yeah, that was the second part. I thought that that part, part was really good because you can't – something about it immediately, immediately just sounds good, but to break it out into words, I guess, I don't know, just you – know, you can't – there's no – I guess there's no finish line for getting wealthy. You can't just like some urge that you have and you can never actually fulfill it, you know, if you, yeah, if you mount yeah. up some, you know, more and more wealth. There's never like a point that you get to uh, – it's like versus if you give money to a poor person, you can give them enough so that they can sustain themselves. And then you've actually gotten to some point versus the wealthy person. They're not going to be able to better sustain themselves because they've doubled their wealth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think he makes a, a good point that the things that the wealthy and society are spending their money on are huge mansions and, and buying multiple houses and knocking them down and reconstructing mansions in their place or leveling mountains or buying art and statues. And even despite their greed and the amount they spend, even they can't defeat their own fortune, which just keeps on growing. <laughs> and yet, you know, there's not enough for the people like him and, and others that have, uh, so like even their household gods aren't there, meaning like they don't even have the money for that. Because they, they would typically have shrines in their house with, with their household gods. Oh, okay. So that's just give you, I wanted to give you a better idea of, you know, what he was saying to his supporters and a little bit more about his platform. But where we left off last time was that they had the, so Catiline had left Rome after Cicero basically attacked him in the Senate. And it's funny, we had talked about last time, Brendan, whether people had left Catiline's side of the Senate or not. And I said, I don't think that that's true. Well, I read another book that said that that was true. And the reason why is they called the backbenchers in the Senate, you know, the people that didn't really have any kind of voice and hold any kind of magistracies, they called them padarii, which meant pedestrian or walker. And the reason why is because when, when two people were giving a speech back and forth to each other, whoever was winning over the crowd, it was common for them to get up and walk over to that person's side of the room and sit with them. <laughs> so they would call these people padarii because they would walk back and forth and they would never speak, you know, they would never hold any positions, but they would just walk back and forth. <laughs> wow. Huh. Pretty uh, fickle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mid-speech, uh, changing their, their support like that. But yeah, yeah but no, that's, that, a lot of times that's uh, they said it's a better way to approach things than to <laughs> dig your heels in like a, like a Kato or yeah. you know, just uh, stick with one thing. But it's uh, actually smarter to change your mind a lot. Yeah. Hypocritical. Yeah. But like most societies, kind of the, the higher ups, the uh, you know people that are leading the parties, like a Cato and like a Caesar, don't change their minds quite so easily as the uh, the moderates. But Catiline, when he leaves the city, he leaves that very night after Cicero denounces him in, in the Senate. But he doesn't leave alone. He he goes with three hundred armed men. He takes a silver eagle that he had at his house in a shrine, and this is one of Marius's legions eagles that they used as their standard in war against the Kimbri, the big German host that Marius had defeated. And he also leaves dressed in the regalia of a consul with fasces, which is, uh, if you've ever seen the uh, bundle of sticks with, I guess it's just a, if you're in Rome itself, uh, you have, say, I think it's, is it 12? Yeah, 12 lictors which would be like bodyguards that would march in front of you as the consul or in back of you. And they would carry these bundles of rods, which symbolized your power of force because the rods would be used to like scourge people, you know, if they did something bad, it was more of a symbol than anything, right? You know, that that's how you knew that the consul was coming, all the lictors. Well, Catiline gets himself a bunch of lictors <laughs> with fasces and starts pretending that he's consul as he leaves Rome. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So he did not win any kind of election. He just declared himself consul. And another interesting thing about the fasces is if you left the city of Rome as consul, they would put an axe into the bundle of rods. And that symbolized your power of life and death over people outside the city. Yeah, and just as a side note, I had read some other source that was saying that the fasces were actually from a tradition that was taken from the Etruscans that came before the Romans. So just a, an interesting side note there. Interesting. That's a good one. Nice. And I know that the word fascism actually comes from the fasces. Uh, I think Mussolini was looking back on Italy's past. And of course, you know, what are you going to look to? The glorious Roman Empire. And, you know, he took the fasces, the symbol of the consul strength and might, and uh, he made that the word for his style of government, fascism. It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is interesting because it's weird when you're talking about something and then it's something that's ancient history. And then all of a sudden it's, uh, it just turns into something that is like much more relevant that we talk about today, fascism. That's why I, I love all this history. A lot of it, you know, you'd be surprised how much of it relates to things we talk about and do today. Now, yeah. upon hearing that Catiline leaves the city like this, basically, it's, it's almost like two animals in a standoff. And as soon as one runs, the other one assumes that, you know, he should chase. And as long as Catiline stayed there and acted like he wasn't guilty, the Senate said, oh, maybe he's not guilty. The second Catiline runs, they declare him a, as a public enemy and all of his followers. <laughs> so, you know, they see him run and it's almost like he blinked first and the Senate just votes him as a public enemy. It is kind of funny how that is, and it almost kind of seems like you feel like they're not basing it off of any kind of logic or reason, but at the same time, like, this guy usually shows up to the, to the Senate, I'm sure, uh, Catiline, and doesn't just, like, abruptly leave, so it kind of is pretty suspicious if he did do that all of a sudden. So. <laughs> and the way that he leaves, you know, he dressed as yeah. consul. I mean, I don't think he was dressed as consul in the city of Rome. I think that, I don't know if he would have gotten out that way. <laughs> But maybe he put it, you know, all the regalia on of a consul and got the fasces after he was out of the city. I don't know. They don't really say. But then 300 armed followers, too. A little bit odd, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, he says that he's going to exile in, uh, I think, what is today Marseille. I don't know if, you, if that's the way, right way to pronounce that name, but in southern France. But he doesn't go there. He goes to Etruria, where this army has been building in secret under the command of a centurion named, I think his name is Manlius. And uh, he's a guy that Catiline knows and, and, and asks him to start recruiting this army for him. And Catiline goes and joins that army. We also left off with the conspirators being caught. Remember, they approached a bunch of the Albroges tribe of Gauls and tried to get them to join into the conspiracy because the Albroges were there to complain about their destitution and how poorly they were being treated by Roman governors. And I mean, the conspirators thought, oh, you know, why not? Like, you know, Gaul is very warlike. It shouldn't be very hard to convince these guys to join us. And so it backfired when the Gauls went straight to Cicero with this information. Cicero said, go along with it. They ended up capturing one of these conspirators on the Milvian Bridge. And the guy they catch red-handed, his name is Volturcius. I like that name, Volturcius. Volturcius, huh? So that's what a Gaulic name? No, that no, he, he's not a Gaul. He's he's a Croton. He's from Cro Croton. Is that like modern modern uh, Croatia? Is that <laughs> no Croton? Uh, I had to look it up myself. It's at the like the very uh, it's at the bottom of the toe of Italy. Oh, okay, they have Volturcius, right? And he quickly gives up the other names of the other conspirators, and they, and they snab these guys. And at first, they're saying no, we're innocent, we're innocent. But then the evidence just becomes overwhelming against them, and eventually, they all admit that yes, we did this. And Volturcius is given immunity to go before the Senate and testify and lay out all the information he knows about everybody. How he got lucky to get that designation, I don't know. I don't know if it's because the first one he was the first one caught, or he was some low-level guy that they didn't really care if he got immunity. Versus some of these other guys are you know big names that they want to catch. And I'll say another thing is when they were caught, they had also given a letter from a man named Lentulus, who's one of the key conspirators addressed to Catiline. Now, it's not signed by Lentulus, but it's got a note that says, he who delivers the letter will basically you know, tell you who this is from. I mean, it tells Catiline to, you know, at this point, they've declared you a public enemy. You might as well let all the slaves join your army, join this revolution, uh, and get a lot more manpower that way, which the Romans is horrifying. You know, they just, 
not too long ago, they had that massive war against Spartacus and and his gladiators and, and all the slaves that had flocked to him. So the idea of another slave war to them is terrifying. And the idea that a Roman aristocrat would invite that upon them, they think is is really terrifying. That's you know really gets their hair standing on end. So they're in the Senate and and they get Volturcius to testify about all of this. Um, he tells them everything that he knows. The Gauls testify as well and say everything that they heard and who they were approached by. And the Senate decides to send all the conspirators to different houses to basically keep them under lock and key. Rome had no prison, which is a very interesting thing. It had no permanent prison. It didn't have a police force either. So these guys were taken to different senators' houses to be locked up, but not under chains. You know, They were just kind of treated as locked guests that weren't allowed to leave, right? And two of them are sent to, or one is sent to Caesar's house, one is sent to Crassus' Krass, house. They're sent to a bunch of different leading senators' houses. And two of the people that are caught are Lentulus, who I mentioned, and Cathegus is another one. Yeah, it seems kind of crazy to have, like, you know, you keep this guy who's conspiring to, to kill you in your house un, <laughs> unchained. I don't know, maybe they had, you know, some kind of guards or something watching him, but yeah, it seems kind of crazy. Yeah, no, and this becomes an issue. The city seems like a powder keg, and there's clearly a conspiracy going on, and we don't know the full extent to it. What do we do with these guys? And to give you some more information on some of the conspirators, Lentulus was an ex-consul, actually. So he's, I mean, as high as you get in the Roman government. But he was thrown out of the Senate for corruption of some sort or another. And to re-enter the Senate, he ran for praetor and won. And I think at this time, during the conspiracy, he is a praetor. And Lentulus, you'll remember we had said that there had been a planned massacre of leading men throughout the city. Well, Lentulus was the one that planned that massacre. And one of the sources I read said that he planned it for the night of Saturnalia, which was a holiday the Romans had held in mid-December. And it's kind of a, a, I mean, one book calls it a distant original to Christmas and the reason why is because Saturnalia becomes a different holiday. I think the holiday of the sun god Sol Invictus. And then that's on December 25th. And then when the Roman Empire converts to Christianity, it's easier to replace pagan holidays with Christian holidays than to create new holidays and to banish the celebration of the pagan ones. So that's why Easter runs on a lunar calendar because it was originally a pagan holiday. That's why Christmas is, is December 25th. And for the Christians out there, because I got into a, an argument with a friend about this one time, I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't born. I'm just saying that it wasn't on December 25th. That was a pagan holiday that, you know, when the Roman Empire converted, they said it's easier just to turn this holiday into Christmas. You know, no longer will it be Saturnalia. We'll now call it Christmas. But Saturnalia was an interesting holiday because during this holiday, the masters throughout Rome would serve their slaves, would serve them dinner, would wait on them. It's this very bizarre reversal of roles within society. So it is almost a symbolic time to have an uprising where the slaves would, you know, or not necessarily slaves, but you know, poorer citizens and freedmen would rise up and kill the rich masters on Saturnalia. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't sound like much of a holiday for the, the nobles uh, having to do all the, the work they usually delegate to their slaves. But It's a, it's a bizarre holiday, yeah, because I, I can't imagine what ruling class that is so dependent on slavery would allow a holiday where they have to go around serving their slaves. It's such a bizarre thing, and, and that even to the Romans, they probably thought it was bizarre too, you know? But it's it's been going on so long, you know, and they are very conservative and traditional as a people. So they weren't going to change it. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if if it you know that that switch of roles would inspire the slaves to you know they get a they get a taste of it or they they see it as them starting to rise up and so it could be an ignition to do a full on revolt or if they would see it as our masters are are being good to us they're you know humbling themselves and you know serving us and so maybe that's a reason to not revolt but. Yeah, I wonder how they how they would have perceived it. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting idea. But Lentulus is eventually called to uh, testify before the Senate as well. And he's forced to remove his praetor's toga on the floor of the Senate in front of all. 
not naked or anything, but just remove the, you know, the symbols of office and dress in a more plain toga, more fitting of his current position. So like his fall from power is literally happening before everybody's eyes. So this is this is Lentulus, uh, right? Yeah, Lentulus. So and, how did he initially lose the fall from power after uh, being consul? Did he do something else sketchy, or he got caught up in some corruption charges and he got thrown out of the Senate? Yeah, again, <laughs> again with the the corruption. I mean, who, you know, what besides stealing land from the the state treasury? Yeah. Like, what what was worse than that? So that it was it was deemed to be it's almost bad like enough where it, it could be charged. Yeah, it's almost like corruption in Rome is a fine art and not everybody is such a fine practitioner of that art, right? And there are people who will get away with probably far worse things, but they do them in a far more covert way or aren't so flashy about it and so get away with it. But maybe he was just absurdly inflammatory in the way he did it, or maybe he was just clumsy in the way he did it, or maybe you know he just was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And the political forces were moving, you know, against that kind of stuff anyway. And he happened to be called at the wrong time. I don't exactly know. Yeah, it makes me wonder though, like the fact that, I mean, yeah. So he got thrown out at that point. You might wonder, did he just get unlucky? Was he just not good at the the whole corruption thing? But then again, now we see this guy like joined the former a revolt. <laughs> so maybe they, maybe there is some real distinguishment that they're making when they toss out certain people versus not others. Or I don't know. I mean, it could be that, or it could be that you know, he he formed. He was more likely to form the, this uh, or side with this revolution because he was tossed out. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, let's not forget this is ancient Rome, where they like. I think a lot of times they believed that the way somebody looked reflected their thoughts. <laughs> so maybe they would make just think like, oh, this guy just looks shady. You know, you know, he's not any good. And I'm not saying that you know, people in ancient Rome were stupid, but yeah, I mean, even today, that people do that, yeah. Yeah, people were even today were guilty of that, but I think they were yeah. even more guilty of that. And and one of the things that Lentulus does, so we talked about how he planned that whole butchering of the senatorial class or many of the senators on Saturnalia. It never took place, but he had 400 men with concealed swords that were supposed to rise up and kill these senators and to take Pompey's children hostage. Because Catiline and the conspirators knew that even if they take power in Rome, even if they kill a lot of the leading class and, and they make Catiline king or whatever their plan is, Pompey is with a veteran army over in what the Romans called Asia, the Middle East, and Turkey, and he was going to be returning soon. And when he returns, they were going to have to resist this veteran legions of Pompey, who is considered to be you know the top general in the empire at this point. So they had to worry about that as well, and they figured... Why don't we just take his children hostage and then he'll behave? Yeah, what a wild scene. Rome is at this. Uh, it's it's it hard is. to believe that it even, you know, stood together, empire or republic, for hundreds of years with all this stuff going on. I mean, what a mess. Like, you would think of any country like this with, you know, these types of things going on today, you wouldn't yeah. even consider it to be like a, a functioning state. <laughs> not at all. And maybe they even benefited from the slow exchange of information because it's not like anybody in the provinces knew any of this was happening until it was already over, you know, because right. information spread so slowly. You know, it's not like, oh, they're, they're distracted. Let's revolt now. And somehow Rome seems to always be able to keep everything under control in the provinces despite all these kinds of issues. Exactly how you know, it's an art to it. You know, the Romans believed that. You know, different races had different gifts to the world. The Greeks uh, had the gift of philosophy and thinking, and the Romans had the gift from the gods of governing. They knew how to govern. They knew how to run legal systems, and their legal system was the gift to mankind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it almost. I mean, I don't know what kind of stuff was happening. I mean, I know that there are revolts from time to time in the outer provinces, but. I wonder, like at this point, which one was more stable, like the the provinces or Rome itself? It's a good point. Yeah, probably depends on the province. At this point, Rome is yeah, not yeah. too stable. The other guy, or I mean, there's more than this, but another one of the main ones is Cathegus. And Cathegus, they search his house after he's caught, and it reveals a, a massive stash of arms, of you know, weapons, of shields, of armor. So that's pretty damning evidence because you're really not supposed to have any weapons inside the Pomerian, which is a circle that goes around Rome that you know, Jupiter Optimus Maximus, their version of Zeus, 
is supposed to protect the city of Rome, but you cannot bring arms into the city. And it's this interesting religious belief that functions very pragmatically in preventing people from having any arms in a city that has no police force. And here Carthagus is with this massive stash of arms in his house. There's no, like, there's no explanation for this. You know, there's no explaining this one away. This is not a good thing for him. Now, the next day, another conspirator is brought before the Senate, and his name is Tarquinius. And Tarquinius had been caught fleeing from the city of Rome, and they brought him back, and they and they forced him to testify. And he gives roughly the same story as the others, but then all of a sudden he go, he says that he was sent by Crassus the rich Crassus that was the big supporter of Caesar and, and is super powerful in Rome, you know, one of the top dogs. He says that Crassus gave him a message to give to Catiline saying not to despair at the arrests of a lot of the conspirators. So they're saying that uh, Crassus got a, a letter from Tarquinius saying not to despair. No, no, no. Tarquinius gets in front of the Senate and says that, hey, yeah, Crassus oh, okay. told me to go to Catiline and tell him, you know, oh, don't despair at the capture of all the conspirators. You know, things will still move forward. Things will be okay. And the Senate goes into an uproar about this. They start calling Tarquinius false and demanding a motion to set on the matter and to vote on the matter. And some did this, Salas says, because they felt that this accusation was ridiculous. Some because they thought that this accusation was probably true, but felt it was best to keep such a powerful person on the side of the Senate rather than pushing him into the arms of Catiline. And others just owed him money personally. And so, you know, were on his side. So everybody, you know, whether they believe he did it or not, wants nothing to do with Crassus being accused because they do not want to push him into the arms of Catiline. Okay, I see. And Tarquinius may have even done this because he figured, hey, if I can implicate Crassus in this scheme with us, it makes it a lot less likely that we get put to death. And if he does come over to our side, that's a heck of an ally. So like, why don't I try to force him onto our side? Now, but none of these things are ever clear, you know, because you can't see into somebody's mind. But Sallust, who again is the historian that you know lived through a lot of these events, says that he personally later, after all this, heard Crassus say that Cicero put the man up to it, put Tarquinius up to testify and saying that Crassus has sent a message to Catiline to force a breach between Crassus and the conspirators. So now, yeah, what what motive would Cicero have to push Crassus? To keep Crassus from going onto their side. Oh, to keep Crassus from going onto the which conspirator side, side. But wouldn't I thought this would push Crassus towards that side? Exactly. It's the exact opposite interpretation of the events, but... Okay, yeah. I mean, in one way, I could say, like, if he got accused in the Senate, then he's forced to say, no, I have nothing to do with that. And then he okay, distance himself as much as possible from that. And now he's not going to defend them in the Senate anymore because once you're accused, it's like being accused of being a communist, you know, back in, uh, during the Red Scare, you know? You don't, wanna, you don't want that taint on you, so now you're not going to defend anybody who's accused either. Okay, uh, so yeah, maybe so. it was a kind of a way of sidelining him. Yeah, kind of force him to... We don't know the exact truth. Deny even any implications that he might be involved with them. Yeah, yeah. So the Senate, they get very angry about this, and they end up throwing Tarquinius out of the Senate and clapping him in chains, and they say he's not allowed to testify anymore unless he's going to testify about the existing conspirators. <laughs> yeah, I just think that's kind of funny, you know? They just panic yeah, because Crest gets locked him up. Yeah, get him out of here. We don't want to hear what he says anymore. Yeah, it's amazing that Crassus has that much power. Oh, yeah, he's a scary guy in Rome. Now, at this time, or around this time, Catullus, who you remember, he's the arch-optimate and enemy of Caesar, the guy that Caesar ran for against for Pontifex Maximus and won out. So Catullus does not like Caesar. And Catullus and another senator that Caesar prosecuted on charges of some kind of corruption try to convince Cicero to add Caesar's name to the list of conspirators and to add him to the group that's being held under house arrest. Cicero refuses this despite pleas from the two of them and offers for rewards for Cicero. Cicero says, no, he doesn't belong in the conspiracy. He's not in on it. Or if I do think he's in on it, I don't, I'm not going to push him into their arms. You know? you know, They don't want this conspiracy to grow any more than it has to or Cicero doesn't want it to anyway. But what these two guys do is they're just not discouraged by that. 
So they go around privately to a lot of different people's houses and they start telling them that Volturcius testified and said that Caesar was in on this whole thing and starts <laughs> building a lot of uh, resentment against Caesar throughout the city. So how did Caesar, how did he involve Caesar in this? I mean, he just started he telling people, saying his name and no, <laughs> he, just, he, just, about. he just blatantly <laughs> lied. He just told a whopper and said that, <laughs> yeah, like Caesar was mentioned among the list of conspirators, which he wasn't, but Catullus is like this uh, august name in the Senate. He's this el- elder statesman, basically. So people believe what he says, like, oh, Caesar was in on this and he is a populare and he did know Catiline and, you know, he was kind of friends with him. So it's not so far-fetched. Yeah, and yeah I, I mean. Also in the, in the next few days at, some point or another, a bunch of uh, slaves and freedmen that were either owned by or beholden to, depending on whether they were slave or freedmen, by Latulus and Cathegus form into a big mob and come to the different houses they're held in and try to free them from the Praetor's house by force, but they're unsuccessful. But still, this is putting pressure on Cicero, like something needs to be done with these people. They cannot stay in Rome in under this like you know house arrest while people are trying to, you know, forcibly free them from houses that, that are not prisons. It's not meant to keep people locked down. Yeah, I mean, I'd be scared that, you know, one of these guys is just going to, in the night, just uh, strangle me in my sleep or something. I wouldn't have it in my house. I know, it would be a little bit scary. Especially if you know that they're planning to butcher a bunch of senators. They clearly don't care yeah. about murder. <laughs> yeah, like that's, you know, you're basically... Uh, I mean, putting them exactly where they would want to be to, to murder you. So. Yeah. So Cicero goes ahead and he, he calls a meeting of the Senate to decide this whole thing. I've just labeled this myself kind of the, the battle of the orators because there's going to be a lot of great speeches given now in this Senate meeting. And the Senate has to decide what can we do with these people, what's legal to be done, what's politically expedient, what's the best thing to do for the Republic and for the city. But before I even go there, I just want to read you a comparison that Sallust makes between Caesar and Cato. And this is somebody that would have known both of these people and lived with them. So I think it's a probably a pretty good comparison uh, and a pretty neutral one of both, despite the fact that Sallust was a Caesar supporter and I think it's good to tell you this or read this to you because they're about to have a face-off in the Senate. And I, I don't know that this is the first time that Caesar and Cato butt heads. I'm, prob- I'm sure it's probably not. But this is the most public time. And this is the first time history records these two really butting heads with each other. And this is where, you know, if they had a rivalry before that, if they didn't like each other before that, this is where it really heats up. So Salas says, quote, Their background, meaning Caesar and Cato, their background, age, and eloquence, then, were almost equal. Their greatness of spirit was parallel. Likewise, their glory, different though it was in each case. Caesar was regarded as great for his kindness and munificence, Cato for his integrity of his life. The former achieved distinction for his mercy and pity, that's Caesar. The latter's strictness had brought him prestige, that's Cato. Caesar acquired glory by giving, by supporting, by forgiving. Cato, by granting nothing. In the one, the wretched found their refuge, meaning Caesar. In the other, the wicked their ruin, Cato. The former's complacence was praised, the latter's steadfastness. Caesar finally had made up his mind to be hardworking and vigilant, devoted to the enterprises of his friends. He would neglect his own and refuse nothing that was worth giving. What he desired for himself was a great command, an army, and a new war where his prowess could shine. But Cato's enthusiasm was for restraint, honor, but especially strictness. He did not compete in riches with the rich or in factionalism with the factious, but with the committed in prowess, with the restrained in propriety, and with the innocent in self-denial. He referred to be rather than to seem a good man. Thus, the less he sought glory, the more it attended him. So you, you can see that they're very similar in many ways, but also very different. And they become famous for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know, the unstoppable force and the immovable object. It really is the, the greatest you know, analogy for what's happening here. 
Cato really is an immovable object. Nobody's able to move this man. And Caesar's unstoppable. Nobody seems to be able to stand in his way. So the two are going to collide for the first time that history records or that I know of right here and now in the Senate House. And that is where we're going to actually end this episode today. Brendan and I sat down to record the conclusion of the Catalan Conspiracy and the episode ended up going far longer than we expected, around two hours. I assume that two hours is too long for most of our audience members, so we've cut it into two parts. You've already heard the first part, and next week we'll pick up again for the second part, where we will have Cato and Caesar in the midst of a showdown in the Senate over the fate of the conspirators. And if you want to find out who's going to win, you're going to have to tune in next time on the March of History.